Thank you for joining us on the Underdog Podcast, the place where we believe at one point in your life, you were an underdog and overcame adversity. And for that reason, we want to hear your story. I am your boy, Calvin Blackman. And I am Kyle Decker. This episode is powered by the Riley Decker Companies. The right decision. For more information, go to RileyDecker.com. Today, we want to welcome Joe Oliver. Joe had one of the most pivotal and clutch hits in Cincinnati Reds history, clinching a game two victory over now Hall of Fame Oakland A's pitcher Dennis Eckersley, which helped lead the Reds to the 1990 World Series championship. If you want to learn from a true grinder, one of the most consistent, toughest guys to play the catching position, listen to today's podcast. Joe caught over Black, 8,000 innings in the bigs, 4,000 innings in the minors, so over 20,000 documented innings, let alone all of the bullpen sessions and countless practices. He's the best to wear number nine in the red and white for the Cincinnati Reds. Welcome, my friend, Joe Oliver. Hey, thanks, guys. I appreciate that. How, how was that intro for you? Uh, I, I guess I, you, you pulled up stuff I had no idea. I mean, I, I started thinking I was a better player than that. <laughs> <laughs> you guys never give yourself enough credit. <laughs> so I, I do got to start off. So most people obviously know Joe for a lot of different reasons, but obviously the hit is one. 19 seasons, I mentioned, grinding it out behind the plate. Now as a current minor league manager for the Red Sox organization, list goes on and on and on. But Black, the one thing they don't know is how Decker dominates Oliver in the Reds' fantasy camp every year. What do you think, Joe? Huh? Well, considering I don't ever get in that bat against you, you know, <laughs> I guess I guess it's uh, I have to say that I don't I've never beat you. Well, I beat you once, and then you guys beat us in the playoffs and knocked us out. So, yeah. so I did yeah. wear I did wear my jersey just to make sure you know that <sighs> this you is know, the you might be the most famous Reds this guy catcher or one of them. So. This guy, he loves to do these I surprise things. I dominate 60-year-olds, right? That's all I want to say. So you better watch <laughs> it. <laughs> My uh, man loves pulling out. He pulled out his college jersey last week. He's got the Reds jersey this week. Oh, that's I, how Joe tries to get in my head. He starts chirping about college and holding field goals and everything like that. First year, I was in your dome. I was swimming in it. He was. He was. It's not <laughs> hard. That's not hard to do. It's not hard to do. Yeah, so, but no, I appreciate Red it. Red seven, Red seven. <laughs> there it is. And I'm up to bat. So Joe's in the dugout, lean back, just chilling, just chirping, Red seven. You're just a kick holder, all this stuff. I'm like, okay. I'm just trying to see a ball and hit a ball. So I like to see where this is going. So, well, let's get into, as Kyle mentioned, everybody knows uh, the, the famous hit that you had. And with this being the underdog and everyone has faced some type of adversity, adverse moment, you know, in their life. Uh, what a lot of people probably don't remember was in the eighth inning, you actually left a couple men stranded on base up against uh, Honeycutt. And can you talk us through, you know, that process and take us back to that moment of the eighth inning and then what ultimately led up to the ninth inning and eventually changed the course of Cincinnati sports history? Thank God. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, you know, we had a, a, a rally going in the eighth inning and uh, um, the A's brought in Rick Honeycutt and I'd had a really good uh, split this year against or that year against uh, left-handed pitching and and, uh, you know, I kind of was looking over my right shoulder when I was on the uh, on deck circle to see if Lou was going to call my name back to pinch hit. And uh, 
uh, you know, he didn't, didn't call and, and uh, I'd not faced him before. So I really didn't have a whole lot of info and uh, fell behind pretty quick. Oh, two and had a chance to, to uh, put us ahead there and, and hit a ball. I thought was fairly decent to third base at glove side of Carney Lansford. But uh, um, you know, I, I did have a pretty good pitch to hit and, you know, just missed it. And uh, uh, those things happen. Um, but, you know, really fortunate that it played out that I got another opportunity on the 10th. Wow. So <laughs> you leave a couple men stranded. Um, <clears throat> you're walking back to the dugout. It's easy to probably go in the tank. You know, this is a big game. You mentioned having dreamt about this moment as everyone has as a kid. And you're probably thinking that was my one opportunity. Um, and then you turn around and you do get another opportunity. Can you kind of just take us to that moment of just being in that big, big spotlight and hoping you're going to get another opportunity to redeem yourself, which you ultimately did? Well, it's it's kind of a situation where you're taught as a catcher that you have to kind of leave your at-bats in the dugout. Out and, you know, and it's it's really tough. Young was, That was my first full season of, of having an opportunity to win a World Series game or put us up in a World Series game and not coming through. So I actually had to focus and, and go back out there and and uh, uh, put together a good defensive uh, game calling situation with with Devil still on the mound, and um, you know they they had an opportunity with the heart of their lineup coming up, and and uh, if if I kind of had a, a lapse in in judgment on, on game calling, it would uh, uh, not be the best opportunity for for us to have a chance to win it next innings or or in the ninth, the case was. So you always have to learn how to focus and and, and uh, leave those at bats in the dugout. And you had never even so, and then you you had never had a chance to face Dennis Eckersley, correct? I, I think I heard you say that. So you knew nothing about him. You had only seen him on television. So you're walking up to the mound, or you're walking up to the plate with a guy you've never seen. Crunch situation. Uh, you know what? What's going through your mind? Well, you know it all laid out. Davis let off the inning with an out, and uh, uh, Billy Bates had his you know his uh, famous uh, chopper off the off the plate for infield hit. And then Sabo, you know, was on fire. It was his third hit of the game. Uh, he never wastes any time. He, he Within the first or second pitch, he usually hits a laser beam somewhere. And and once again, I'm looking over my shoulder because, you know, I know Jeff Reed is the left-handed hitter and uh, seeing if uh, uh, Lou was going to pinch hit for me. And once again, I didn't hear my name called. So I kind of get up there and just say, all right, let's, let's, Stay aggressive, but uh, we've never seen Ack. We've seen him on on uh, TV a ton, you know, um, and we we've seen the videotapes and we have a little bit of an idea of his patterns. But I've never personally see seen his release point in the batter's box. So I, I took the first pitch, and it was a backup slider that I probably wouldn't have swung at anyway, even if I would have been really aggressive, just because I thought it was too far inside. Um, and Rocky Rowe called it a strike. And the next time I said, I'm just going to look for a breaking ball. He's already shown me what he's going to do. Um, and and uh, he threw another backup slider that was better on the middle to outer half part of the plate. I put a pretty good swing on it and uh, hit it right down the line. And all I could see was Randy Marsh pointing fair. And, uh, you know, the, the uh, toilet paper flying through the air and, and hearing the, the, the elation of the crowd. It was unbelievable. You couldn't hear yourself think that place was so loud. And you guys were the underdogs, I, I believe, too. So that puts you up. Nobody gave us a chance of anything. And, and you know, here is here are the A's. They they were in their World Series for the third straight year in a row. And, 
and with all the perennial all-stars and future hall of famers, you know, we're the upstart, uh, young group of guys that are, they're coming in, making some noise. And, you know, we beat a really good Pittsburgh team. And I still think if Pittsburgh would have beaten us, that they would have had a really good shot of beating Oakland as well. But, you know, we came in and, and had no fear. And I guess being a little naive played to our advantage. And we just believed in ourselves that somebody each night was going to pick us up. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, I love to hear the mentality, whether it's business or sports, just like you said, overcoming adversity in the eighth inning, taking advantage and being prepared in the ninth. And, you know, obviously you had to shut them down in the bottom of, uh, or top of the ninth to, uh, or what any, that was the top of the night or bottom of the ninth, right? 10th or 10th, 10th, 10th. You know, I came up the first time in the eighth and then it was extra innings in, in the 10th. Yep. Yeah. I should know that how the batting order goes, but <laughs> well, I guess I'm acting like a baseball <laughs> rookie here. <laughs> you know, that, that what's, what's so special is, is, uh, Eckersley, when you look back at it, had not blown a save all year long. And obviously that wasn't a save situation and he didn't have a loss. So he had a perfect season going and he was completely dominant throughout the whole year. And, uh, you know, we, we beat, uh, beat the best guy that they could throw at us because, you know, Bob Welsh had won 27 games that year and uh, won the Cy Young and Eckersley came in. So we faced the best they had that night. Well, I've really enjoyed it because I didn't remember, you know, I was about five years old then. I was like eight. And uh, <laughs> watch it. Yeah, sorry. Right <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there he is. Um, but watching it this past week, you know, obviously it's, I think, the MLB Network and, and Fox Sports Ohio and, and just seeing you guys uh, relive that and, and watch it and, and understand it now. Uh, which I really hadn't had the chance to do is is pretty special. So, and I think too, just to just for those who may not completely understand, but if that doesn't happen and they tie the series again, as I thanked you before we started recording, like we may not have a championship here in Cincinnati, and we're on a now of Lord knows how much deep of a drought. So again, thank you for <laughs> for coming through. <laughs> well, you know, we we really felt like they were in a. Uh, in a funk offensively because they really struggled even in the American league season uh, series. And, and uh, you know, our pitching was so dominant and they were so good and they were on point and it just, it really shows good hitting is going to struggle when they face pitchers who are locked in. And uh, you know, we, we were swinging the bats extremely well. I mean, we faced a tough Pittsburgh team that got us motivated and got us going and, and we just never slowed down after we after we uh, clinched in, uh, at home against Pittsburgh. That's awesome. And in what point, Joe, can you walk through? I mean, obviously you were in, you played professional baseball for uh, 19 seasons, I believe, and then from '89 to 2001, you were in the in the big leagues. How are you able to? And like I mentioned in the intro, all of those innings of 12,000 plus documented innings. Um, which I believe is a fact. I looked that up. So believe it or not, I did some fact finding here. Um, <laughs> and uh, at least by the Cincinnati reporter, hopefully he's accurate. But the, uh, you know, talk through like longevity, consistency, like how you overcame injuries. I mean, I know you and I have talked about like, you know, the the toll it's obviously taken on your knees. I mean, that's a t tremendous amount of stress that you put on your legs. Like, how did you sustain that? Well, a lot of people don't know that I had torn my rotator cuff earlier in the year when we were in Atlanta uh, and uh, actually played the rest of the season, um, part of um, August and September with a torn rotator cuff. And it was really hard for me to, uh, to throw. And um, it's just a, it's a mindset and a mentality that you have to have that the better option 
you don't want uh, your backup to get out on the field because he might ultimately be a better option. And uh, I just had the mindset that I wanted to play and did anything and everything that I could to be out on the field. And I did take care of my legs. I did focus on a lot of flexibility exercises and I did uh, focus on strength training with my legs and working on that. Um, and that's ultimately what really took care of, of my, my body and, and throughout my career. And obviously, uh, the older I got it, the tougher it became and you had to work even harder and harder. So uh, you just have to, to, to have a mindset that uh, uh, you're going to do everything you can to play that night. And then as the game is over and you're unwinding at home, you have to kind of rebuild that. You know, it's it, it, I think it's, you know, football player. I've heard people talk about it and you can probably obviously agree with or tell me about this as well, but uh, you get a whole week to uh, prepare for that one day. We have just hours and you have to kind of build up throughout the day as a baseball player. And at least in football, you get to build up each day of the week. Now you're implementing the game plan. Well, it's kind of a little bit different with baseball. You got to do it as the hours pass, you know, and, and get into a routine and stay consistent with it. And one thing that people don't know as well, which I wouldn't mind you touching upon, is like you you are the quarterback. Speaking of football, you are the quarterback of the defense being the catcher. A lot of times people look to Barry Larkin, which is a great player at shortstop or some of those guys. But, you know, putting down the pitches and, and making and having a defensive game plan, calling out, you know, defensive strategies. Can you kind of touch upon the leadership and the quarterback of a catcher and the mentality of, of your leadership behind the plate? It's a great question. Well, you know, to give me some credit. Thank you, Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> so when when a, a a new club comes into town you have your meetings uh and you go over uh offensively you go over their their pitchers and what you're going to see in the days that they're there the series that they're there and then all their bullpen guys and just basically talk about their uh their pitching staff and it's the same way um as a as a uh, catcher in the pitchers as you bring in the pitchers and you go over their hitters and what they have coming off the bench and uh, typically who's hot, who's not. And so you have those main meetings at the beginning of the series. And then each later, when you get closer to the ball game time, you, you go in with the starting pitcher and you go over the game plan that you're going to lay out for that guy, particularly. And typically the infielders, they'll have their, uh, their meeting on defensive positioning and uh, lets the outfielders know who they're going to shade and, and the infielders where they're going to shade or move. And in today's game, you have these big shifts. So uh, they are looking at their their uh, little cards they have in their pocket or in their hat or whatever. And so they know where they're going to play on these shifts or not. And then, you know, you have basically a script that you're going to follow uh, game calling. And then you're going to go out and uh, if the guy's struggling a little bit, you're going to get beat with the guy's number one. You're not going to get beat with his secondary uh, second pitch or third pitch. So uh, the hitter tells you everything you need to know, game calling, and the pitcher is going to react to it accordingly. Yeah. And, and uh, one story that comes to mind, talking about leadership, I didn't tell Calvin about this, but can you kind of touch upon young rookie Brett Tomko when he didn't want to listen to how you were putting down? Can you touch upon that story? Well, I, I think it gets better every year he tells it in camp. So uh, he'd come up and had some success uh, pretty quick and was was on a big roll. And and uh, it's kind of, you know, he, he always refers to it as his Bull Durham moment where, you know, he was Newt Lelouch and he was cruising along and he decided to shake off Crash Davis. So I guess that makes me Crash Davis. So 
Um, and I went out and had a little talk with him and just said, now you're going to question. We're cruising along. You got one or two hits and, you know, you're dealing, throwing a shutout. And you're going to start questioning me. And, and we're, we're, we're in a good rhythm and a pace. And, um, you know, after the ball game, he came in, he was all cocky and happy. And, and I said, Brett, man, you know, just kind of pump the brakes a little bit. You had a great ball game, but, you know, don't, you know, you're not going to be able to fit in the clubhouse if you keep uh, blowing your head up like this. I mean, you're, you're, you're really starting to buy into this too much and it'll come down, you know, rookie, be quiet kind of deal. Right. And so he went to the shower and, and uh, said, well, I'm going to send him a message. So I got his underwear and I put some uh, atomic bomb in his underwear. <laughs> I was wondering where this yeah. was going. <laughs> and so he said on the way home, he got back about five minutes from his house and all of a sudden he started itching and burning and he couldn't sit still in his car and, and all of a sudden just he was on fire and so he came back to the ballpark the next day and he said i understand joe i understand <laughs> so. captain joe i love that <laughs> so that goes along to with, with with what neil has to walker when we had him on early episode was you know you're either going to be humble or be humbled and it sounds like uh you humbled my man, uh, you know, early on in his career. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, well, it's just, you know, their teammates check each other and, yeah. and, you know, we don't want anybody to think they're bigger than anybody else in the clubhouse because when everybody's pulling on the rope, you know, you get more done when you got one guy thinking that he's the only one doing the work, then you start separating. So. And I think, and then the culture of the clubhouse, you know, I think that's so important. Like you said there and teams we've been on and obviously what made that 1990s team culture? Was it, or those things, cause you were a younger player then were, were you, um, was that culture so strong like that? Was it like a, a, a unit of brotherhood? Could you kind of touch upon like that culture? What, what made you guys successful? Yeah. I mean, it was such a tight knit group. I mean, we, we went to dinner together, you know, we, we went out and hung out together. We, we weren't sprinting out of the clubhouse after a ball game, but we kind of go into the, uh, the food room and kind of recap what was going on and talk and have something to eat. And, 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 you know, we would enjoy each other's time. And, uh, you know, most of the guys that were on that club came up through the minor leagues around the same time together. You know, we had instructional league for uh, a few years where Eric Davis and Paul O'Neill and Cal Daniels and Lenny Harris, Kurt Stillwell, Barry Larkin, Chris Sabo, myself, uh, you know, all these guys were all within just a few years of, of getting to the big leagues at the same time. So the culture started, you know, in the minor leagues. And then I think that was one of the reasons why I was probably accepted a little quicker coming up to the big leagues because I'd been around a little while and I knew what those guys were like. And then you add bits and pieces of Hal Morris and Mariano Duncan and Billy Hatcher. I mean, it, it, Glenn Braggs, you, you just, the list goes on. Danny Jackson had been there th via trade and, you know, you just, you, you get Norm Charlton uh, in the minor league. So it, it, we had been a big uh, family uh, in the minor leagues and it just carried on to the brotherhood up in the big leagues. Now, is that something like translating it today, not to jump too far ahead, but you know, you being a manager double a inside the Red Sox organization for the Portland sea dogs, I believe um, up in the Northeast, is that something that as a head coach, as a manager, I should say, that you try to institute in building team uh, team culture with, with your current players? Yeah, you, you try to emphasize that, you know, get to know your teammate. Um, sure. And it's a different culture. I mean, it is a different culture. You know, social media has changed 
these guys, all they're worried about is after their, their game is over to check their Instagram, to check their Twitter, uh, to see if anybody posted something about their gameplay that night. And, you know, uh, they're calling their girlfriend to see if they watched on the MILB network. And it's a different culture. And, but you, you try to get those guys to buy into uh, getting to know each other a little bit better because there's going to be quite a few guys that you move up the ranks with. And you're, you're going to have those days that you struggle and you're going to need a true friend and uh, somebody who's got your back as well as you've got theirs. So uh, you can't fall in love with the, with the, with the uh, social media too much because it'll come back to bite you in the rear end. I found something interesting. Like I said, our previous guest, Neil, was a close friend of mine when he was with the Yankees. I was like, what do you guys do? Because back in the day when he first started, he's been in the league for about 10 years up in, in the big leagues. And with the Pirates, they'd come in and they'd go out and they would go to dinner, go out, have drinks, whatever. Now they all go back and play Fortnite. <laughs> like they all rent a room and they get multiple TVs and they're playing Fortnite. And like you said, it's just a different world. Yeah. It's crazy to think about. So uh, yeah, they they do sit there and talk about the video games that they play all night long, and then I'm like, I don't want to hear that you went to bed at four thirty or five thirty in the morning. I mean, at least you're not drunk and and you know coming in out from a bar or something. But still, being tired is tired. Yeah, right, right. We were, we were actually trying to do our research, see if you you've joined TikTok yet, but we haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> I I watch it from time to time uh, just to see what in the crap's going on, and I just shake my head, but I, I laugh. That means you're getting closer because I think the interview I watched from two years ago, you're like, I'm not on TikTok. It's not me. But now you're watching it. So we interview you in a couple of years. He's going to be off. We're going to have some videos. Must see Joe well, TV. I do. I do try to keep tabs on my players from time to time and see if they post some stupid crap because then I'd like to call them out, put it up on a big screen in the clubhouse now, and, and kind of write the ship. Sure. That's great. <laughs> now you had a, as we've mentioned, you had a, you had a, a 19 year career. You played with seven different major league teams. Um, and then post career, we know you've gone on to manage, but before that you took, I believe it was about 13 years off to spend time with your family and raise your kids. What core values would you say that you learned from, you know, just having spent time at the highest level playing the game that you were able to instill in your kids and maybe in, uh, help foster their growth and development into the adults they are today? Well, I, I had promised Kim when I was done playing that I would, I would be there to raise a family because, uh, and help her out as much as I could because of the demand of what we did as, as you know, baseball uh, players and traveling and eight months out of the year, we're not really home. And even when we're home, we're really not there because we're trying to rest and recover. And, um, when I got home, it was obviously a big shock of something that I've been doing for 19 years. It's not there anymore. And, you know, you can only golf and fish so much. And um, being around the kids was, was an incredible experience, getting to be there every day and them having a father uh, around all the time was, was awesome. Going and taking them to school and picking them up from school and, and going to their dance recitals and their ball games and uh, just being present um, was incredible. And I wouldn't replace that for, for anything in the world. And, and uh, you know, I got kind of tired of, of listening to some guys who were coaching and I give them all the credit in the world. They were giving up their time. But I'm like, you know, this is something that I want to pursue seriously. So I'm going to start coaching high school athletics. And I got involved in my kids' uh, uh, baseball program 
uh, the, the school, private school that they went to and, and then created my own travel baseball program. So I just, I wanted to be around them and I felt I was going to be the best person at that time to be able to teach them more about the game and more about life than somebody else who wasn't completely invested in it, didn't have the experience or the resume that I had. And so let's give your wife a little plug too. So you met your wife when you were playing, you were playing a double A ball. Um, Cause you, you were, was it 1983, I believe were my notes. Um, you had committed to Georgia and then ultimately did not end up going to Georgia. Cause you had no, you really had no aspiration. <laughs> there it is. There it is. It's wearing the Georgia shirt for those who can't see, but you can watch it on YouTube later. Um, but your wife, you know, she stuck with you through the grind of the minor leagues, um, you know, for those, what was it, six or seven years before you ended up ultimately getting called up to the bigs in 1989. So from the 83 to 89, can you talk a little bit about that time frame and maybe the support your wife was able to give and just kind of what that took, you know, for you to finally achieve the ultimate goal? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually went to high school with my wife, Kim, and uh, chased her around for you know, two plus years in high school. And, and then I got drafted by the Reds and I went away to Billings, Montana. And she said, when I came home from that, from that, I had grown up so much and changed and matured. And that was just a three month, you know, stint of being away. And, you know, I didn't have mom and dad to tell me what time to be home. And, and, uh, uh, I had to make adult decisions, you know, and, and I had never been West of the Mississippi and here I am in Billings, Montana. Um, but, you know, Kim and I got married in 1985 and, and, uh, um, she went through the minor leagues with me and it was not easy. Um, you know, we were, we're making hardly any, any money at all and trying to piece things together and having to live with another teammate, his wife and, and split the, uh, the rent and, and try to, uh, you know, back then when we would go eat at places, they would have a happy hour. You know, if you buy a drink, you can eat the, the uh, appetizers for free, you know? And so we found those places left and right. We would go eat cheese sticks and, and chicken wings and nachos just because we didn't have uh, uh, any money to, to really get along on. And then, you know, uh, when we started having a family, um, it was in 90, our first kid. So I got to the big leagues at that point and made it a little bit easier, but it didn't make it easier with her being by herself. So, um, and now fast forwarding to today's situation, we're going to go back through the same league that uh, we spent uh, two years in as husband and wife now as a, as a manager and wife. So it's pretty neat seeing some of these cities that we were in as players and, and going back and rehashing it again. And a grandpa. Yes, I am. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh... Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. It's life changing. It really is. Yeah. You get to spoil them and then give them back. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> soup them up with sugar and uh, yep. give them what they want and get those bad uh, bad behaviors in them and then send them right back to their parents. Yeah. Love it. As soon as they start crying a little bit and they start getting a dirty diaper, it's, oh, here you go. Here's your mom and here's dad. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. When I get older and if, if, if when my kids have kids and I'm a grandpa, I do not want to change. I, I'm just so tired of changing diapers. Like, I'm over it. I'm going to have a big diaper party, Joe, and you're invited. So when my kids are out of diapers – I'm the, you're going to be invited. You can come to Cincinnati and I'm going to have a big, big party. So do you get back That's here awesome. much? Uh, just maybe once a year. Yeah. You know, not, not too often. Gotcha. 
So we we got uh, every every session we got we got a, a, a decent amount of rapid fire here. People say this is the funnest part of our podcast, so we wanted to load it up for you because I think you have some some great uh, insight and great personality. So we want to start off with a bang, and this is actually something uh, from your friend Mister Picoro uh, for the <laughs> Reds Fox Sports. He wanted oh boy. to know. He, he wanted to start off rapid fire with naked and afraid. Oh man! Oh, it's just tell us about that. Just something stupid that I did uh, <laughs> when uh, my my wife and I we were in Salem and just trying to kill time. You know, we're we're hiking through the mountains. Uh, she likes to go out and, and find these foothills and and, and the Blue Ridge Mountains, and uh, we're hiking through there. And I said, you know, it'd be funny is if we did a little spoof on naked and afraid. So she's like, well, I'm not getting naked. I'm like, well, just pull your shirt down and show, show your shoulders and hide behind me. And I take my shirt off and we just do some some stupid skits. And I would shoot from the, the hip. So if you go back through my Twitter feed, they're on there. <laughs> it is great. <laughs> uh, it, it is phenomenal. So we had, that, that's a great start. Um, who is your favorite teammate and why? Oh, man. Oh, I mean, I tough I, one. I, I yeah, I, I love them all because we all had different relationships, but, you know, probably the closest with uh, uh, Norm Charlton and Rob Dibble. Uh, mm, and most of my best friends were, you know, were pitchers anyway, and that's probably why I had such a great rapport and relationship with those guys because I knew more about them personally and understood what kind of mo- motivated them and what was going on in their head that day. And getting in those two heads – that's scary. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. I bet you we, we could dwell. That'd be a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> no talking doubt. about those guys. No doubt. Well, you uh, got a little taste of it when dibs came to fantasy camp last year. So. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to, to get to get to know him. We got to get him on this podcast. I know you gave me his oh, number. He'd so love it. I'll be, he'd love yeah, it. yeah, I know he's doing big things out there in Connecticut and with ESPN. Um, I know you mentioned travel, Joe. I know obviously you're back in, and travel in decent amount. Now what from minor league town to visit and, and really go enjoy the, not outside of baseball and maybe baseball was part of it, but what, what's your favorite minor league town to, to go and visit? Oh boy. Uh, none of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are some small town USAs, uh, that, that are just, uh, you know, they probably don't even have the back to the future American films yet. So, I mean, they're so out of touch and, uh, but, you know, Cedar Rapids, Iowa was, was fun to be a part of, but, um, I think honestly, I would like to go back to Billings, Montana, uh, because I was 17 and 18 years old when I was there and I didn't really understand the beauty and the appreciation of the, of the countryside. I would like to see that again. Um, and I would like to experience that because, you know, a lot of guys, they would get out, they were older, they'd been to college, they'd get out and they'd go fly fishing you know, and, or they'd find a river or whatever. And next thing you know, they got pictures of, of a grizzly bear downstream. And I'd, I'd love to see that. Yeah. I've been to Billings and Bozeman in Montana is my fate. You, you were looking at me. I know Calvin, you know, I always growing up in Dayton, you're probably like, where is Montana? Nah, I'm just giving you a hard time, but, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> what's fly fishing? No, yeah. um, it is uh, incredible, man. How, how beautiful. I mean, I I've been out there three times and it's just impeccable. Every season is great. Great skiing with the big sky. And then you got your fly fishing, went to a wedding. I mean, just wow. Yeah, definitely go there. You know, the, the, the Carolina league in itself, it's, it's actually a good league and, 
and the travel is really pretty. The mountainsides that you get to go through in the Blue Ridge Mountains, you know, you, to, mm-hmm. to see the farmland and everything, it's 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 very pretty. Next question. As a as a baseball fan, but you know, um, one thing I'm always intrigued by is you know the the relationship with managers and the umpires. Uh, <laughs> you see the arguments, and there's not footage of you yet. Uh, you make it to the bigs, bigs. I'm sure we're gonna have some footage of you, you know, giving an, an ump the business or vice versa. Uh, but what is your relationship with the umpire? Can you kind of take us inside some of that chatter sometimes that goes on? Uh, I feel like sometimes you me, guys me as a manager, yeah, yeah. Or even as a player, yeah, let's have a little fun. Well, as a as a player, you kind of get to know those guys a lot better because you know you're, especially me. You know, you, you don't just sit there and talk about the ball game. I mean, I would find out about guys who like to hunt, to fish, to grow tomatoes, to grow flowers, to you know, just they would talk about their grandkids. So you kind of build a a relationship, and and then you know you can actually get on those guys, and and they appreciate it in a different manner where it's not so combative, but as a, as a manager, you're protecting 25 guys and, you know, you can't really pick and choose who you're yelling at the umpire about because now all of a sudden it becomes favorites, you know, favoritism. And, and you kind of got to get on them to make sure that they're staying awake. And, and in the league that I'm in, most of these guys are, they're at the jumping off point of either they're going to go to AAA or they're basically going to be let go. And they've got a lot of pressure on them themselves to, uh, to succeed and, and perform well, just like the players do. But you kind of build it up, you know, and, and, and when you only have 10 teams in a league and and, and uh, five sets of umpires, you uh, tend to see them quite often and things tend to carry over and they know it and you know it. And uh, there's some pretty let's just say you would probably need a dump button, you know, if you were if I was my, uh, mic'd up and you probably need a five or six second delay. <laughs> that is great. Yes. Yeah. That's what I was looking for. That is, that there's is a lot of, there's a lot of Lou Pinella that comes out of me. Cause I've had two pitching coaches that played for Lou, uh, Paul Abbott and, uh, uh, Lance Carter. And both of them had said, I swear, I thought I heard Lou Pinella out there on the field yelling at that guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You're, that means you're on your way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So speaking about on yeah. the way, what is your dream manager job? <laughs> Anywhere in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know what you're trying to get me to say, but. <laughs> <laughs> that was Picoro too, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, the phone's never rung, and I love I love where I'm at. They, the Boston Red Sox have been extremely good to me. Uh, they've been good to my family. I can't, I can't complain anything about. Uh, the way they've treated me and, and uh, you know, at least there's red in the name. Sure. You know? Sure. And that's where you ended your uh, career, right? In 2001 was with the Red Sox. Right. I was with the Yankees, got released uh, in July and then got picked up um, to finish out with the Red Sox. And that was obviously 2001. And that kind of, that whole, you know, situation uh, changed the way I looked at things and made my time at home more important uh, of being there and, you know, I, I could have played another year or two. It would have been probably a minor league invite, worked my way. And I was just 36 years old. My body was breaking down. And I, I felt it was I was going to leave on my own terms. Sure. Now, a couple of baseball uh, questions here. When are we uh, when are we going to get back to action? I know it's it's been a debatable thing. And what does that look like for, for majors and minors? Well, minor leagues, 
are only going to be, you know, uh, predicated on what happens with the big leagues and the big leagues are the priority. And I hope that they don't sit here whining, complain about money when you got 60 million people that just got laid off from work and, and get this figured out, you know, whether it's revenue sharing or, or, or prorated salaries, let's just get the guys back on the field. Let's take care of that. Um, this is not the time for, uh, in my opinion, you know, arguing about a labor agreement or a dispute over money. Cause you know, it's going to be hard enough for people to get in the stands anyway. Um, and I just want to see the greatest game uh, back on the field and whether it's 82 games or, or a hundred games or 30 games, I just want to see it played. And uh, you know, hopefully the minor leagues will take care of itself after that. But uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of, uh, uh, things they have to consider the safety of the players and the players' families when they get exposed to each other. You know, uh, they've got to consider all this. And, and uh, when they slowly start letting fans into the stadiums, how are we going to, you know, accommodate that? So there's some big decisions they have to make, but I just want to see baseball back. Yeah. I hate for them to have to revert to uh, airing fantasy baseball camps on air. Um, I don't know how much of watch TV actually, that actually could be interesting if, if they broadcasted our, our camp on, on TV. And then we had, uh, all the, all the teams play each other and Joe, you could be the, the manager of, of the Cincinnati Reds fantasy camp. So you and dibs can, can lead us to glory and, and maybe, you know what, that, that could be our, uh, you know, we'll, we'll give them the baseball you, fix. You know, Rob Dibble that well, you can call him dibs. No, I don't know. <laughs> but. I will. So you better. Hey, look, please, you're already challenging send me, this, me. Send me this clip so I can send it to Dibs. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, he's gonna come on here and say you don't know me. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Um, let's see here. What else do we got for you? Um, I think that's for the most part. What, what else do you got for him, Calvin? I, one question I have, and I think this goes for you know a lot of times having. I got to coach uh, the collegiate level for a few years, um, and now being in the business world, and I run into a lot of parents and different things, and uh, having coached at the collegiate level and then coming to get to coach at the high school level, what would you say, for in your opinion, is the biggest difference of coaching high school and then coaching in the uh, in the minors? The parents. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Just drop it right there. That's it. I mean, um, you know, when when you're coaching in high school and little Johnny's not playing shortstop and hitting third or fourth or or pitching, uh, the athletic director gets a phone call and. You know, they just so happen to uh, complain enough or they're a bigger donor or whatever, you know, and in pro ball, um, little Johnny better play. You know, little Johnny doesn't play, he sets. And usually uh, that's that's the conversations that you, you have with these guys. It's like your mom and dad are great people, but they're not going to tell me how to make the lineup card, you know, uh, and, and you're here to get better. And, uh, you know, obviously the organization is in, made an investment in you and you're going to get your opportunity. But if, if it doesn't look like you're uh, putting the work in, then you're going to sit. Put the work in. Amen. Amen. Is there any uh, parting words, Joe, for our audience about, you know, getting through maybe some of these challenging times or anything that you have, you know, gotten through adversity in your life that you could, you know, any parting words? Well, just, you know, everybody just stay the course and trust, uh, that the uh, people in charge are going to do the right thing for everybody involved. And, you know, you, you pray for all the first responders who are out there risking their lives to make sure uh, people are getting healthy and, and, and trying to save their lives the best they can. And, 
you know, you just hope and pray that everybody's healthy and we see the other side of this coming soon and just be smart, you know, uh, take care of yourself, take care of your family. And then I think we'll be in a better place. Amen, brother. Well, we appreciate it. Thank you for everything, Joe, you do for, for, uh, the Reds and, and for baseball and, and, and I've enjoyed getting to know you and, and your family. And, uh, as you continue to progress, you, we got, you got big fans over here. Um, and, and, and I hope that you eventually will draft me out in Arizona. Well, you yet to be determined. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we, we, nonetheless, you're, you're a, a great guy and, and super appreciative of your time. Absolutely. I appreciate that guys. and wish you all the best. Yeah. Appreciate it, man. Yep. Best of luck and uh, talk to you soon, Joe. Appreciate it. All right. God bless. Bye-bye. Yep. See you brother. Thanks for listening to the underdog podcast. Please subscribe and rate our podcast on the Apple and Google podcast apps and send our Twitter handle, a screenshot of your rating at underdog pod with your shirt size for a chance to win a free t-shirt. See you next week on the U D P.